We're going to be in the book of Job. I've been encouraging you to bring your hard copy of your Bible if you have it. Uh, not because I'm against digital copies at all. It's just that as we're, we're going through Job, we're covering large passages. And it's a little easier to flip uh, between the passages and to see what's going on versus on a digital screen. But, uh, so, it, if you need a Bible, there, there are hard copies of Bibles underneath the seats uh, in front of you, I hope. If not, nobody's going to scold you for looking uh, at your phone and, and looking at the Bible on your phone. Uh, but we're going to be, in Job chapter 34 will be our text. We'll look first, though, at Job 32 when we get there. What do you do when you see others suffering? What do you do when you see others suffering? I I think we all have a nagging desire to know what God is up to in this world. And by extension, in the lives of others. And we like to think that we can interpret why things happen in the world. And by extension, in the lives of others. For instance... Why were four boys and their grandfather all killed by an escaped convict in Texas? And why that family? We hear of a school shooting and some may claim that it's God's judgment for taking prayer out of schools. Or perhaps it's a result of allowing no-fault divorces and the effect it has had on the family. Or maybe God is judging us for kids spending too much time on video games. It's far too easy to paint with a broad brush when we are far removed from a personal interaction with a tragedy. But what if I were to name the names of those children individually? Why was that child shot to death? Why was that mother and father bereaved of a child? And suddenly we begin to feel the insensitivity of our interpretations of what God is doing. But unfortunately, that doesn't stop us. And even when we know of individuals within our families or within our church family, we still have this desire to know what God is up to. And we're tempted to judge others based on our interpretation of what is happening in their lives. We may say things like, well, he was a nice guy and all, but I can see why God let him lose his job. I think I know why she got cancer. We think we know. Most times we keep those judgments to ourselves and Perhaps we share them with friends, but sometimes we're brash enough to actually share our interpretation of what God is doing with the individual who's going through it. And today in our scripture text, we find someone that brash. As we come to the book of Job, what we know is that Satan has challenged God as to why Job is following him and Satan thinks that Job's a gold digger. He only serves God for the good that he gets out of it. So God allows him to take everything away from him. And he loses his children and all of his possessions. And then he loses his health. And Job is struggling and wrestling why this is all happening to him. And he doesn't realize what's happened behind the scenes. He doesn't have the picture we have of this story. And then his three miserable comforters, his three friends come along and they accuse him of having sin in his life as to why 
God is doing this and Job is insistent that he has not sinned. And the scriptures tell us that he's an upright man. And God is proud of Job, actually, when he's confronted by Satan. And so Job hasn't sinned. And yet this terrible injustice has occurred, brought on by Satan. And the three men have examined Job and Finally, Job steps in and he says, look, I'm innocent. And he had his hymns on wisdom. And he says, you, I, I'm going to fear God and eschew evil. I'm going to turn from evil. It's all I know what to do. And it's after all of this, there's a moment of silence, if you will. And then a young man named Elihu steps up. Let me introduce you to Elihu. If we look at Job 32, verses 1 through 5, the narrator of this biblical story, the writer of the book of Job, gives a brief introduction to Elihu in chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Berachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, Burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Elihu is an angry young man who tells it like it is. In verse 22, we hear that. His source of wisdom is his spirit, we find in verses 8 and 18. And he seeks to justify God. And let me tell you something. He is truthful in verse 18 when he says that he is full of words. As his speeches consume six chapters of the book. One commentator says this, Elihu believes that Job deserves his treatment because of his self-righteous attitude in which he justifies himself at the expense of God's reputation. Elihu accuses Job of being prideful, but in truth, it is Elihu that is the arrogant one. In chapter 36, verse 4, he says this, For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's some guys when they walk in a room, they 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 think to themselves they're the smartest person in the room. But Elihu's making it. If you haven't noticed, he lets them know. But despite his arrogance and even though Job nor the Lord respond to his speeches, Elihu does contribute to the discussion of suffering. Elihu introduces the possibility that suffering can be used by the Lord for instruction to keep a person from making a wrong decision or continuing on a path that will lead to the pit, to death. Okay. Previously, the other three friends, they have vehemently argued that God is just, which everybody agrees with. But that Job has sinned in some way. Elihu introduces this possibility that perhaps God is warning Job, but Job's not listening. So in chapter 33, Elihu argues 
that the reason for Job's suffering may be preventative instruction. But Job is pridefully not listening. Elihu states that there are three ways to avoid the pit. God speaks uh, instructions in two ways. Number one, dreams of warning in verses 14 through 18, which can be preemptive. And then he also speaks to people through pain and strife in their lives, which rebukes them in verses 19 through 22. And then there's a third way that is used to warn people away from the pit, and that is if an angel corrects a man who is doing wrong and then pays the ransom for his misdeeds. And that's found in verses 23 through 28. Elihu claims in these situations when a man is confronted either by God or by some divine being, some divine angel, and and is corrected in his ways, God allows you to repent two, maybe three times in your lifetime, and then that's it. Okay, But you can be warned away from the pit. And to Elihu, it is clear that God is speaking to Job, but Job refuses to listen to his instruction. So with that, we come to chapter 34, where Elihu presents his case that God is just in his punishment of Job, Because Job is guilty of arrogance, ignorance, and rebellion. He will not listen. So, we turn to Job 34. And first we see Elihu asking Job's friends to listen to his case against Job. And then they will together make a judgment as to what is good and right. So let's read there in Job 34. It says, Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right or my justice. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And then Elihu says, what man is like Job who drinks up scoffing from his accusers like water? In other words, he does this without shame. He, he, he's just taking their accusations and he's not bending his will and admitting his sin. Who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Now, while Job never said these exact words, Elihu uses them as a summary of what Job has said as Elihu interprets him. Job, according to Elihu, is accusing God of treating him like a liar, even though he is righteous. And he claims that there's no profit in delighting in God. Elihu is angered by this, and he marvels at Job's arrogance and lack of shame. This in itself shows that Job is a man who walks with the wicked. And we hear echoes of Psalm 1. But then Elihu makes a call for the wise to know God like he does. And so he goes in verses 10 through 15. We read there. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. 
and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? And he is implying nobody. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Now, Elihu sounds very much like Job's friends in these verses. In verses 10 and 12, he states and restates a truth about God that we can all agree on and even Job agrees on. God will not do wickedly. But in verse 11, Elihu has built a nice little box that he has placed God in. In his mind, in order for God to not act wickedly, God must repay a person according to his ways in this life. And it's important for us to remember that in the story of Job, it is Satan who has done wickedly in Job's situation. God has not acted wickedly. Satan has. Next, Elihu makes a call for the wise to hear his defense of God. And if we're going to say one thing that's good about Elihu is that he has a high view of God. And he steps in. He wants to magnify God. In fact, after this, he's going to spend a couple chapters praising God and exalting him. But he want, he gives a defense of God. And first he talks about God's justice on wicked rulers. Look at verses 16 through 20. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? And then he speaks to Job. He says, will you, Job, condemn him God, who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment, they, that's the wicked rulers, die. At midnight, the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Elihu argues that God, who is impartial, governs justly by destroying wicked rulers. And there's an argument here from the greater to the lesser. If God will impartially judge rulers, then certainly he will also do so in Job's situation. Next, in his defense of God, Elihu tells us that God can be impartial because his omniscience, his all-knowingness, allows him to make judgments without a hearing, which is true. Verses 21 through 24. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all of his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further than he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Since God sees all and knows all, there's no need for him to have a courtroom where a man can defend himself. God knows what he did and he knows his motivations. And so he can make a judgment at any point. And then the third thing that Elihu gets to is that God's judgment on rebellious rulers is a public thing. It's for all people to see. Verse 25 through 30. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night and they are crushed. 
He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. In other words, they were rebellious so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. And he heard the cry of the afflicted when he is quiet. Who can condemn when he hides his face? Who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man? That a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. Now, Elihu here foreshadows his accusation of rebellion against Job in verse 27, where he says that he has no regard for his ways. Remember, I told you that in chapter 32, Elihu claimed that God is speaking to Job, but Job's not listening. Like the wicked ruler, Job is in rebellion, for he has no regard for any of God's ways. That's Elihu's accusation there. Now Elihu addresses Job and calls him to repent. Okay, he says here, for has anyone, and I kind of imagine him saying here, and I'm looking at you, Job. Okay, has anyone said to God, I've borne punishment and I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Verse 33, will he then make repayment to suit you? Now he's speaking directly to Job because you reject it. That's God's punishment that he's rejecting for you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. Note verse 33, who Elihu basically says, do you expect God to change your punishment? Just because you don't like it. And you may hear uh, your pastors here at Faith Baptist say something like this. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. Have you ever heard that phrase? You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. That's true. That's true. But has Job sinned? No, he hasn't. So just like Job's miserable comforters, Elihu is missing the mark here. He's saying, hey, has anybody just said, hey, God, not even exactly sure what I've done, but if you'll show me, I repent. But Job has nothing to repent of. But Elihu believes that Job needs to choose repentance, but he simply won't. So given Job's lack of repentance in light of God's warning judgments, Elihu calls for a verdict. He believes his verdict is a no brainer if you're a wise person. And uh, more of his arrogance comes out. You know, if you're a wise person, you'll agree with me. Right. But verses 34 through 37, he says this. Men of understanding will say to me and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. Now, talk about insensitivity here. He he's basically saying, would that would Job's suffering just continue until he passes away? Verse thirty seven, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. He claps his hands among us. That's like shooing away. We saw it previously when Job was talking about the the men that were uh, worthless that have now overtaken his property. And he's, these are men that you would clap your hands at and shoo away. Hey, get away. He's, Elihu's saying Job is clapping his hands at the wise men and shooing them away. 
And he multiplies his words against God, who is, according to Elihu, trying to instruct Job. And so we have Elihu, who has come into this scene and he's watched this spectacle of these men accusing Job of being sinful and Job defending himself and questioning what in the world is God doing. And he's angry and he's young and he's full of words and he bursts forth and he he declares what God is up to in Job's life. He sees Job's suffering and he tells him what his problem is. Now, there's some some very true things that Elihu says, and but they're about God, but then they they lack logic uh, that is proper and so we won't cover that again because we covered that back in the Elihu or Eliphaz's arguments. If you go back on the website, you can look at that sermon to look at the false logic that we use when people are suffering. Today, I want us to look at what Jesus did when he encountered people who were suffering and how different it was than Elihu. Look over to Matthew 14, verse 14. What did Jesus do when he encountered pain and suffering in the lives of others? Matthew chapter 14. I I call this Jesus' modus operandi, his M.O. What was Jesus' M.O. when he encountered people who were suffering? And I believe we will see, and I've, I've alliterated it because I'm Baptist and I have to, but we're going to see Jesus see suffering, sympathize with the sufferer, and then serve. He's going to see, he's going to sympathize, and he's going to serve. Matthew 14, verse 14. When he, that's Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He saw He had compassion. That's what I've said is sympathizing. And he served them. He healed their sick. Look over to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verse 32. Great crowd is gathered to hear Jesus teaching. It says, then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. He sees the crowds. He has compassion on them. And he wants to serve them. Luke chapter 7. Or excuse me. Let's, let's, since we're in Matthew, back up to Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He saw the people harassed and helpless. And he said they need people to care for them and to have compassion on. And I, as a man in his man form, couldn't meet the need himself. And so we are to pray. We're the hands and feet of Jesus in this world today. 
when we encounter suffering, we're to see, we are to have compassion, we are to sympathize with people, and then we're to serve them as best we can. Now look over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He comes across a widow whose last son has died. And he says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What a compassionate Savior. And you say, pastor, man, that's great. Jesus could heal lepers. He could multiply bread and feed people. He could raise the dead. But maybe you don't know me that well, but I can't do those things. Well, Jesus gave us a parable. Look at Luke chapter 10. What should we do? We don't have time to read the whole thing, but it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. And so this is the unlikely hero of Jesus' story. The religious people have already passed by this man who's been robbed and beaten. And the point that Jesus is getting to is that we should be neighborly. Who is my neighbor? Was the question that was asked to him. But look at Luke 10.33. And let's note what this good Samaritan does. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. That's the man, man who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And when he what? Saw him. He had what? Compassion. Do we see a pattern based on what we've already read about Jesus. He had compassion. Now, this Samaritan didn't have the ability to heal this man, but he served him. It says in verse 34, he went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And he, left, he told the man he'd pay for his Room and board. He used his time. He stopped what he was doing and paid attention. He used what he had, his abilities. He placed him on his own donkey. He used his talents to serve this man. And then he used his treasure, his finances, his oil and his wine, which were not necessarily cheap things back in those days, to care for this man and then pay for his care. He used his time, he used his talents, and he used his treasure to serve. All of you have time. All of you have talents of some sort. And all of you have treasures of some sort that you can use to serve people who are suffering that you encounter. See, sympathize, and serve. That was the M.O. of Jesus. What about you? Beloved, we must not seek to interpret God's purposes in the circumstances of others' lives, but rather see their suffering, sympathize with them, and serve them. Oh, how we like to think we know what God's up to in the lives of others. Like Elihu, we have a tendency to get angry and seek to defend God when He doesn't need us to. God shoulders the responsibilities of this world, and He doesn't need us to defend Him. Like Elihu, we have a tendency to speak too much and too often 
and too angry instead of showing compassion and grace. We tend to be judgmental and think we know what God is up to. I fear that when we would when we see the multitude suffering, we think, well, why didn't they bring enough food for three days if they were going to hang around here for three days? Christian, you must not seek to interpret God's purposes in the circumstances of others lives, but rather see their suffering, sympathize with them and serve them. John Walton, in his commentary on Job, shared this powerful illustration He says the world was shocked at the devastation caused throughout the Far East by the tsunami that struck on the day after Christmas in 2004, caused by the Sumatra Andaman earthquake, the third largest earthquake ever recorded in the Indian Ocean. The death toll was nearly a quarter of a million people. The following spring... I had a student in my class from one of the devastated areas of Indonesia. In one conversation with her, I asked whether she had lost family or loved ones in the tragedy. She replied that gratefully all were safe, and then she told me a remarkable story. In recent years, there had been a thriving Christian community living in the coastal region, her family included. The dominant Muslim population of that area, however, had become belligerent, And had begun persecuting the Christians, taking their homes and driving them from the area. Over several years, the Christians were all driven inland. Then the tsunami struck and virtually wiped out the population of their oppressors. It would be easy to see how the Christians of that community would conclude that justice had been done. God had used the tsunami to punish evildoers. They got what they deserved. That was indeed their immediate response. But their wise and godly pastor began to push their thinking in a different direction. The tsunami, he insisted, was an opportunity for the Christians to show love to their enemies by coming to the aid of those who had persecuted them. He urged his congregation to gather medical supplies, food and clothing and to travel to their old community. And to help those who survived. What Christ-likeness. Beloved, we don't need God to come along. We don't need, God doesn't need us to come alongside Him and say, here's what, here's what I'm up to. You know, I'm trying to get this guy's attention. I'm trying to teach this guy a lesson. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need your help. We're not, we're not graduate students helping the teacher teach a class. Right? No. We are to see suffering, we are to sympathize with the sufferer, and we're to serve. That's our job. Now, there's one caveat here. We live in an information-saturated world. We are aware of situations of suffering around the world in places we have no possibility of serving. And in those situations, we can see and we can sympathize, but... About all we can do is pray that the Lord of the harvest will send people in his name to show compassion. In our world of social media, 24 hour news channels, we just we hear of so much stuff that we can't affect. We've got opinions on it. And like Elihu, we're glad to share them. 
But in reality, we spend a lot of time worrying about stuff that we cannot change. And in those situations, we just need to pray and look here locally in our own church, in our own community, and look for people who are suffering. And we don't know what God's up to in their lives, but we can serve them. One other situation where God saw, sympathized, and served is that God saw this wicked world and He had compassion. And He sent His only Son to die for a sinful world. For God so loved the world. In this way, God loved the world that He sent His only Son to die for the sins of the people. That those who repent of their sin may find forgiveness and restoration and salvation in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you today, God has saw your plight. He has seen your sin. And He has sympathized with you through Jesus Christ, who came and died for sin. And then was resurrected to be with God the Father. For the purpose that if you will repent of your sin, And trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, a living Savior. Then your sins will be paid for by His death. And your righteousness will be His righteousness that He lived. Oh, would you trust Jesus Christ today as your Savior? There's no other hope without Him. Come to Him. The one who we saw in the Scriptures was one who noticed people in their suffering. And He sympathized with them. He had compassion on them. And He served them. Become one of His followers today. And join us here at Faith Baptist Church as we seek to imitate our Savior in that when we come upon sufferings, we see it, we sympathize with the sufferer, and then we serve them with our time and our talents and our treasure. If you'd like more information about that, please see me after the service. Let me know. And we'll point you to Jesus. Christians, We live in a sin-wrecked world. There are people hurting all around us. Let's serve them in the name of Jesus Christ.